We're going to pick back up in Exodus chapter 34. We're going to look at the last, or the first six verses last time. This time we'll aim to finish this chapter, verses 7 through 35. Exodus, as you'll recall, is about God's name being made known through the names of Israel and it's in this book that he's, he's launching what his name is, who his people are. He's carrying out his creation purpose of being fruitful and multiplying. You know, the, being fruitful and multiplying in terms of evangelism, him, him being made known and his glory spread to the ends of the earth and him doing that through his covenants, which is why I wrote these things on the board just as a reminder that if I've probably given you this piece of paper that has this stuff on it, and I say it a whole bunch, but I drew it as a reminder. So when we're talking about God's glory, that's one of those words that we tend to take for granted as Christians. We just say, oh, I know what repentance is, and faith, and grace, and then somebody asks you to explain it, and you go, I don't know what that means. I just use that word. <laughs> glory is sometimes one of those words that, that we hear it, we use it, but we don't totally understand what it means. And part of that is because it's really multifaceted. But broken down, it refers to God's attributes and activities. You know, it's who he is and what he does. And one of the places we see that is in Exodus 34, when Moses, he requests of the Lord, show me your glory. What he hears is Yahweh calling upon Yahweh and proclaiming who he is and what he does. Or he's calling upon God to be who he will be and do what he promised to do. That's still his character and his will or uh, you know, other synonyms to talk about that. And his will is what he's planned to do through his covenants. And the covenants in scripture, you know, the first one being the Noahic covenant, the next being the Abrahamic covenant, and now we've gotten to the Mosaic covenant. They, they frame and forward history. You know, they, you know, when you build a puzzle, if you do it right, you build the, the frame first and then you fill in everything in, in the middle. But everything has to be built in the middle. That, that's where it connects. It can't connect outside of the frame. So God's plan, I didn't write Noah covenant on there, but it's for, for everything to enter into a, to God's rest. And the Abrahamic covenant is about how God is going to gift that. You know, he's going to restore people back into the land as his seed under his blessing, which is what God's kingdom is all about. And you think about when under the Mosaic Covenant where God is revealed that he's going to destroy those who break his law, you have Moses, when he intercedes, he doesn't intercede based upon the Mosaic Covenant. He, he doesn't intercede based on that, but rather the Abrahamic covenant. He says, well, God, remember this gift that you promised to give your people, to, to actually have a people and to, to give them a land and to do this for your name. He says, therefore, you can't, you can't kill everybody because then you'll be a promise breaker. It, it'll mess up your name ultimately. So, so God says, well, you will go into the land and Moses says, well, that won't be enough. I mean, you have to go with us. You have to be there with us. It's not enough just to have the seed in the land. Your blessing has to be there. And the blessing is being able to dwell in your presence again. 
And you just told us about that in the tabernacle. Like we can have that sort of relationship of dwelling with you like man did back in, back in Eden. And so he's appealing to, you promised to give that kind of gift. The Mosaic covenant, you know, part of the, the emphasis of that is the, the reward, but it's like, how do you get rewarded with that sort of gift? And Moses offers to, to be the guy who maintains that and connects that together. You might remember when I've talked about the, the covenants, I've talked about the Noahic covenants, like the railroad of rest and everything has to go down those tracks in history. Then the Abrahamic covenant is laying out three carts of the train on there, which is land, seed, and blessing. And then the, the Mosaic covenant's like the taxi that gets you connected to that train. But the problem with the taxi is the doors are welded shut. You, you, can't, you can't ride the thing. Right? Somebody has to do something for you to, for you to be able to have that reward and that connection to the land seed blessing promise of the Abrahamic covenant. But just because you can't do it doesn't make the gift go away. It just makes you wonder, well, how's God going to do this? Like, I know that he's faithful, but how is it going to work? Which that's what Moses wanted to know. And he gets that he was supposed to be a, a mediator. God, you know, pushes him into embracing that Roll with everything that happens in chapter 32 with the golden calf incident. And God says that he's going to destroy this people. And that pushes Moses to say, well, you know, don't, don't do that because uh, you, you can't kill these people because of the, the Abrahamic covenant. You, know, you can't do this because uh, it'll ruin your name ultimately. You know, the, the nations will say, well, you just brought all these people out here to kill them. And they won't be able to distinguish you from the other false gods that they've made up. And when Moses connects back to the people, certainly the, the death that they deserve is carried out, but not on everybody. So it shows, you know, God's going, God's plan has always been to forgive. Let's say, well, how is that? How can that forgiveness be just? How can, how can he kill some people and not others? And in when we come to chapter 34, it's answering the question, well, how is God going to undo 32? How is he going to undo this people who deserve death and judgment? You know, how is he going to undo these people who have forsaken him and they've given the worship that's due to him to this golden calf? How can a people like that be forgiven? And how can they be forgiven and God still be just at the same time? So God is answering this question to, to Moses by telling him, it is going to be a mediator. It is going to be an atonement. You got that right, but Moses isn't the mediator. And when Moses tells the people, perhaps I can make atonement for you, God says, that is how it works, but you're not the one who does it. So Moses says, well, show me your glory. You know, show me uh, your attributes and your activities and how this thing works. You know, show me, you know, who you are, and that you're the one who will be who you will be, and how you're going to do this. Show me your character and how you're going to carry out your will of these covenants that you've made with man. And when God comes to do this in chapter 34, when we looked at verse 5, it says, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses and Yahweh called upon the name of Yahweh. So what he's, 
what he shows Moses is what's going to happen is the mediator is going to come alongside him right next to him and be the one who intercedes for him. He says, this is how it's going to work, which he's showing Yahweh's going to be the mediator. But what it's going to leave open until the book of Leviticus is how does the atonement thing work? What, what you're going to see here as we continue to, to look at, at this text is you're going to learn that forgiveness is how it works, that God is just in his forgiveness, but it doesn't all get explained yet. It's going to leave you asking the question, well, how, does that, how, how can you be just in the justifier? How can you forgive and it be you know, a just sort of atonement where you're not just overlooking it? What you got to wait for you know, Leviticus class on that, which comes right after Exodus, because it all just connects together as one story. So it'll, it'll feel like you never left Exodus class in a way. It's, hey, we're just continuing on in the same story. So as Yahweh passes by in front of Moses, we'll pick up in verse six. This is, this is you know, again, this is kind of baffling in that, you know, you recognize, you're seeing, you know, Yahweh in the cloud interceding to Yahweh, appealing to who he is and what he said he would do. That's what you're hearing here. So pick it up in verse six. Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children, on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. And he said, if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though they are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own inheritance. Then God said, behold, I am going to cut a covenant. Before all your people, I will do wondrous deeds which have not been created in all the earth, nor among any of the nations, and all the people among whom you live will see the working of Yahweh, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to do with you. Be sure to keep what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you, and the, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Beware lest you cut a covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, lest it become a snare in your midst. But rather you are to tear down their altars and shatter their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall not worship any other God for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you cut a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, which I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in that month of Abib, you came out of Egypt 
The first offspring from every womb belongs to me, even of all your male livestock. The first offspring from cattle and sheep. And you shall redeem with a lamb the first offspring from a donkey. And if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. You shall redeem all the firstborn of your sons. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest you shall rest. And you shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks, that is, the first fruits of the wheat of harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year all your mills are to appear before the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel. For I will dispossess nations before you and enlarge your borders, and no man shall covet your land when you go up three times a year to appear before Yahweh your God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, and the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover shall not be left over until morning. You shall bring the very first of the first fruits of your ground into the house of Yahweh your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Then Yahweh said to Moses, write down these words. For in accordance with these words, I have cut a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with Yahweh 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now it happened when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with them. Then Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to him and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him. And Moses spoke to them. And afterward, all the sons of Israel came near and he commanded them everything that Yahweh had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. Then Moses finished speaking with them and put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before Yahweh to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out and then he would come out and speak to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded. And the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would return the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. Let's pray as we consider this text together. Our gracious Lord, we see your gracious character and that you are willing and able to forgive sinners, even those who break every single one of your commandments, as did the Israelites of old with that golden calf. We pray that you would help us to see that you haven't changed in that grace and that you have grace even for sinners like ourselves, that you can also justly forgive us, that you can be gracious to us, that you can perform all of your promises perfectly and with absolute power. Pray that you would bring us into wonderment of who you are and how you carry out your redemptive plan and that you have redeemed us, that we could know you 
that you would dwell in us and that we could dwell with you forever. Amen. Israel had received a, an immense privilege of being connected to God's kingdom to be a, a priesthood of that kingdom, to make God's character and will known to the ends of the earth, to mediate his presence to the nations. But upon that call to have that as their constitution for their nation, they commit immense sin. And in committing their immense sin and breaking all of the commandments, they serve the purpose of the law, which is to point out sin. What we're going to see in this text is that had to happen. You know, for them to be able to understand God's grace, they needed to understand their sinfulness. Otherwise, it wouldn't be an intelligible sort of concept. They couldn't rejoice in his forgiveness if they didn't realize that they needed it. So their immense sin ends up being a precursor to forgiveness, where in this text, God shows his immense grace, where Yahweh acts as a priest mediator to Yahweh to show God's glory, that he is who he is, that he is just and will be the justifier of sinners, and that he will do what he will do in his salvation plan, which is to destroy and to deliver. But you see, just like what happened, like all of the plagues had to happen to reveal God's glory, his wrath had to be revealed towards some to make intelligible and make known his mercy. You also see with this people that he delivered that it wasn't like God delivered the good guys away from the bad guys. And you find out everybody's a bad guy in the story. But with these bad guys who were delivered, they needed a salvation that went belong beyond just moving them in location. Uh, they needed a salvation of the heart, and they deserved to be destroyed. And some of them were destroyed, but some of them weren't. And so it raises the question, well, how can that work? How, how can... Uh, God, you know, justly carry out the death sentence on some of them when everybody deserves it, when all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How is it that some can live? So you see that God can forgive, that he can demonstrate his grace and his ability to save others, but how, how does it work? Well, we want to keep in mind Israel's role is we think through this text because what everything that's happening to them is teaching the nations what their God is like because they're, they're seeing this people that should have been destroyed, but they don't all get destroyed. So they're saying, this God is not like the gods that we've invented in our minds. Now, this is a God who forgives, but how does that work? You know, how, how can this God forgive and it be right when all of these people deserve to be destroyed? Exodus 34 is an obvious climax in the book in revealing God will be who he will be. He hasn't changed in his gracious character. He hasn't changed in his will that he's expressed through the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and even the Mosaic covenant. 
And Israel can't understand that he will be who he will be unless they see their sin, unless they see who they are, unless they see their sinners who deserve death. But in recognizing that some of them didn't you know, receive this death, then the question's raised, well, how can he, re- how can he reverse this? Well, God can reverse this based on who he is and what he does is going to be the answer. You know, you can't understand that God is gracious and that he forgives apart from recognizing that uh, he's just and he carries out deserved judgment. So we learned last week, there's the water pump. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're regaining water pressure to the premises. <laughs> yeah. So when, as Yahweh calls upon Yahweh, where it, it might sound strange or foreign to hear that in Exodus 34, it's perhaps less foreign and strange when we think about Jesus on the cross calling out to his Father in heaven when he says, you know, why have you forsaken me? You know, why has your judgment fallen upon me? I'm being forsaken as the substitute of these people who deserve to be forsaken. Or, you know, as he deals with the death and sin problem when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And what you're, you're hearing is Exodus 34, you know, Yahweh interceding to Yahweh on behalf of a sinful people as he makes the atonement that is required. And you see that God's grace is not just a, a disposition of unmerited favor towards others, but it's, it's paired with you know, the power to intervene. It's not just that he, he wants to be gracious, but he's also able to carry it out. It's not just that he wants these people to have a land, but he can actually give it to them. It's not just just that he wants them to have this relationship with dwelling with them. He actually has the ability to restore and reconcile that relationship and to, to, to bring them into his house, to bring them into dwelling in his presence. And it says that God's abounding in loving kindness and truth. Uh, the loving kindness is the word that gets translated you know, in the Greek, as grace, which is, you know, it's carrying out, God has the ability to make these covenant promises and to carry them out. He can promise to Abraham that he'll make him a great nation and actually do it. His covenants are here framing and forwarding history based on who he is. And when you get to the Gospel of John, you find out Jesus is this. Uh, He is loving kindness and truth. He is grace and truth. Uh, He is Yahweh. He is the God-man mediator and atonement that everybody's been waiting for. Uh, He's the fullness of grace and truth who comes in the fullness of time. And he is true, which is the idea with this as we talked about. He's, uh, He's not a lie, which this word is distinct from his faithfulness. 
not just that he is faithful, but he's also true and that he, he's not superficial. Uh, he's not like social media. He's not uh, virtual. He's not artificial. Uh, he's true. Uh, he is reality. You know, truth is reality. And truth is God, just as Jesus said, he is the truth. And the reason that you can lean on him is not only that he is faithful, but that's reality. Uh, that's, you know, he's the genuine creator that can be trusted because he can't be other than who he is. And these words here in verse 7 are communicating that he, he's always this. So he keeps loving kindness. Not sometimes, but all the time. You know, he's, he's unwavering in his loving kindness. Uh, he maintains a constant intensity in that loving kindness. It never fades. It never diminishes. And in verse 7, it says of his loving kindness, it says he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And the idea of forgiveness, what this word means is you know, he lifts off. You, know, you can think of uh, like when you use stain remover on your clothes, that it lifts the stain out. You know, that's the idea of this word that gets picked up in other scriptural language of it. You know, it's like a fuller's soap. You know, you're blemished and spotted in your garments, but he can lift that off. He can take it up and take it away as far as the east is from the west to the bottom of the sea, never to be seen again. And then he can lift off and separate that iniquity from you so much that it's no longer you. Uh, it's no longer your status anymore. Uh, you're not a people who deserve judgment, but you're his treasured possession. Or instead of you know, having the status of sinner, you now have the status of saint. We have three words that are used of sin here, iniquity, transgression, and sin. And this word iniquity has to deal with you know, who you are before God. You're guilty. Iniquity has to deal with the fact that you're guilty. Transgression has the idea of uh, you cross the line in a relationship. You, you've transgressed a, a relationship. You've trespassed the appropriate bounds of that relationship, and you've committed a, a high-handed sin. And the sin is the idea not so much of missing the mark, as we usually talk about, but it's a breach in standard. You know, God set the standard for how you're to image him, and say, you've missed that. Uh, you weren't perfect when you needed to be. Uh, you weren't representing my image like you should have. It's a Sin is a catch-all term for all violations of God's character and commands, whether they be on purpose or accidental, or they be of omission or commission. So these three words for sin, iniquity, transgression, and sin, iniquity, describes who you are. You're guilty. Transgression is, you know, it's a trespass in relationship. 
and sin is a breach of God's standard. So this describes you know, who you are and what you've done. You, know, you are guilty and you've transgressed your relationship with God by not keeping the standard of himself. Why do you think this is important in light of what Israel has just done to hear this truth that God forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin? Why do you think that that's significant at this point? Yeah. <clears throat> and they're one, you know, can he forgive us after we've done something like that? Yeah, and this point, you know, what they do know for certain is that in certain judgments, they've seen the judgment, they've seen the way God responds to his righteousness. So it, in part, is that um, God is unfolding before them increasingly more and more profound aspects of his character. This is essentially what's next in his self-disclosure. He's a God of judgment, but he's also a God of mercy. Yeah. Because you think, I mean, you, you've just seen you know, Moses, you know, he comes down with the Ten Commandments, and you, you think that you were worshiping Yahweh. But what you did was you, you were worshiping with all of your old habits. And it's like, well, the golden calf is just the way that you honor God. I mean, this is just what you do. This is how you honor a God who does something for you. And then Moses shatters those two tablets to show that they've shattered that relationship. And they're, they're thinking, it's over. Yes, some, some people die today, maybe the rest of us tomorrow. I mean, how do we know that we can have this kind of relationship with them. And Moses is wondering this, especially because he's the one who's leading this people, and it, he's he's learning the next thing before it happens. You know, what, what happens to Moses then happens to Israel in that sort of order, and he's understanding mediator, atonement. He's understanding the forgiveness that's been shown him. He's like, well, how's that going to work with these people, you know, with what they've done? So it, it's showing God forgives all, all kind of sin, you know, every kind of sin. Uh, you know, Israel, Moses and Israel needed to hear this after Israel had broken every commandment. And that God doesn't just forgive their actions, but he also won't view you as guilty afterwards. So he said, it's not just, well, I, you know, I, I can forgive you and just kind of choke it down and, and put up with you. But he says, you know, his forgiveness can do something more than our human forgiveness can do. And it, it can actually change your status in that relationship. He says, 
Oh, okay. So it's forgive, he forgives actions, changes your status of being guilty. Okay, he forgives to the point where that status can be changed. And it says there in verse 7, he, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Which you get, you say, well, I, I can forgive these kinds of sins. Which, well, how, how would that be right? <laughs> how can that be right to just overlook all of this stuff that just happened? And this is, you know, a, a negative statement. You know, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. But the positive side of that is he will uphold justice. You know, his forgiveness isn't arbitrary. It's a just forgiveness. It, it's not something that can be taken back. And when he does it, he's right to do it. And he makes things right somehow. It's going to leave that. That question's going to be left hanging in the air until Leviticus. But you probably think of 1 John 1, 9 here that he's faithful in what to forgive our sins? Yeah, he's faithful and just. He's, he's right to do it. It's his character to do that. Uh, it's his will to do that. And when he forgives, justice is served. Those concepts are connected together. So we understand this you know, later in history through Jesus' death on the cross. You know, if, if Jesus has been judged for our sin, then we can't be punished for our sin because his forgiveness is just. You know, the, the penalty for the sin has been paid. It's not just overlooked. It's not just swept under the rug. But in, in a sense, another way you could think about the two tablets is that it's not just the receipt, it's the bill and the receipt. He said, this is what you guys owe me. Complete, perfect obedience. And then, you know, what Israel says to him, says, we'll pay that. We'll pay you complete, perfect obedience. But instead what they do is sin, and they get the wages of sin, which is death. But what, what you're seeing within God's character and that when he, these two tablets, there's going to be two new ones, he's, he's communicating the relationship isn't gone. But it's not going to be we will obey to pay the bill. He's saying you can't pay the bill. So what, what you work for is sin and you get those wages. You're not able to do this. But he says, I will do it. His community, you know, I'll accomplish the obedience part. I'll accomplish you know, the death penalty part. I'll accomplish the not sinning part. You know, this is kind of the, the precursor to all of that, all of this to recognize that, you know, even though they've sinned, God is going to redeem by grace and by his doing it, apart from their not doing it, not deserving it, all of that. So God's forgiveness, while it changes our status, it doesn't make the consequences of our sin go away, which explains this next revelation of God's name where it talks about visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And this is you know, making sense of you know, the iniquity of the guilty. Now, 
it's, what it's not saying is that the guilt transfers to other people. Like it's some sort of uh, hereditary thing where dad commits a sin and so the son can be punished and then hit, the grandson can be punished. But it's communicating that the effects of that iniquity can be multi-generational. What you see that in the, in the context here in verses 15 and 16 where he teaches them the way that it, it, the iniquity visits future generations is when you have apostate marriages where your children who are in covenant with me marry people who are not in covenant with me and you covenant with them. It says, lest you cut a, a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods and one of them invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And then you see the multi-generational part and you take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlots with the harlot with their gods and cause your son also to play the harlot with their gods. This is, you know, your guilt and giving your son over to, you know, marriage with people that are not within this covenant in which it's not that foreigners and sojourners can't come into that covenant, but so it, he's not just saying that you can only marry uh, purebred Israelites. <laughs> uh, that's not how it works. But uh, what's being communicated is if you know you give your children over to, to apostate marriages, you know your your guilt in turning away from me is going to have effects on your kids, their kids, so on. So forgiveness doesn't undo the consequences of sin. You know, what's taught here is the idea that iniquity is a bad visitor and it doesn't move on very quickly when it comes to visit. We're learning here that God isn't going to carry out an unjust forgiveness. And you hear this tension and this... And these words that God must judge, but he also forgives. So how is it that God can forgive, but, no by, but by no means leave the guilty unpunished? How can he do that? At, at this point, all you know is that that's, that's what he's like and that's what he's going to do. But it, it, it does what the whole book of Exodus does, which invites you to come and seek him for the answer, for that, that tension, for that question. So that you'll go, well, how does that work? You know, it's something that invites you to pursue knowing him, to pursue enjoying him. But it starts with faith in he is who he says who he is. He will be who he will be. I don't know how it works yet, but I want to know how it works. So at this moment, we just know it's true that he'll, he'll carry out a just forgiveness. Leviticus will answer the specifics in revealing God's name and salvation. But you also see it, it looks forward to the exodus not just being something that's horizontal, but vertical. 
I'm only like halfway through. <laughs> what is today's date? I'm supposed to finish this whole book by next week. What? Sounds <laughs> good. <laughs> Well, we'll do, we won't be on the cliffhanger as long because we'll just get to Leviticus and we'll answer this the question that's raised here. <laughs> okay. Well, M Moses has the right response here. Yeah, he, he makes haste. This is verse eight. He made haste. He bows low toward the earth and he worships. And it's just, Lord, I, I believe, and this is more amazing than I, I could have ever imagined. Yeah, I, I trust you. I, I, I delight in this. And to know this and to make it known to others is the, the greatest privilege in all of life, to have that kind of priesthood, to show what God's character is like to others. And in all of this, you see that we should take our sins seriously. I mean, they, they think about what should have happened, what could have happened, but what actually did happen. In verse 9, when it speaks of God pardoning sin, well, this is you know, Moses' plea. He says, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though they are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin. This is, this is a word that's only used of the Lord in Scripture. You know, he's the only one who can pardon and Again, just where his forgiveness is unique and that it can change the status of the person who's forgiven. Like none of you can do that to somebody else. And you can't change their, their status. That's the same with this pardoning iniquity and that you can't pardon somebody and then make them your own inheritance. You can't pardon somebody and then adopt them into your family. You're giving them a, a new status, a new relationship, new family. You know, this is unique uh, to God, he, he can take a people uh, who, who hadn't been shown mercy and show them mercy. He can take a people who were not his people and make them his people through the unique way that only he can forgive and the unique way that only he can pardon a people. And when it picks up to say that God's going to, to cut a, a covenant with these people, it's showing that he, you know, he, he's initiating the renewal. You know, he's initiating the, the do-over. And it is explained with the words he's going to do you know, wondrous deeds, which we had just heard of these words with you know, the plagues and the judgment that you know, Egypt deserved. He says, I'm going to do something like that. But what this is, is it's, it's taking that Exodus language and it's looking forward to another Exodus happening. Says, I'm going to do wondrous deeds like I did then, but greater. And they're not going to be uh, just the, the the outside sort of creation wondrous deeds, but they're going to be this this wondrous deed of changing you from the inside out, making you a new creation from within. You know, it's it's anticipating God not just controlling his, you know his creation, the land and being sovereign over evil, like the evil of the serpent and Pharaoh. But he's, at, he's, he's so sovereign, he can actually change your heart 
to, to love him, to believe in him, and to reflect him. And you hear these Edenic sort of words and that Adam heard where in verses 11 and 18, which structure this section, it says, be sure to keep. Now, what happens is he starts going through all the Ten Commandments again. But what he's doing in going through these Ten Commandments again, he says, okay, when you broke them all, unlearn all of that. <laughs> like, look at how you broke every single one of them and unlearn that. And he says, but then learn them this way. It's this kind of put off and put on because I'm establishing this new relationship with you. And in doing this, you know, God says, I'm going to drive out those ones who are in the land. It's, it, it's not your righteousness that's going to accomplish my law or my covenants or my commands, which, you know, that's, that's part of the tension with the Mosaic covenant is it's the only, it's the only covenant in all of Scripture that's bilateral. It, it, it requires the other party keep their end, and, it's, and thankfully, it's also the only covenant that is not forever. <laughs> it, it was temporary. And none of you guys have ever lived a day of your life under the Mosaic Covenant uh, because we have graduated in to, to Christ as our covenant head and fulfillment of this covenant. Yes. The question just is driving out of my brain. So you're saying that this is the covenant that now that it's being reiterated is bilateral, but is it also predicated on God's initiative? So in effect, even though they are required to keep the covenant, their keeping of it isn't is it what is ratifying it? God ratifies it by his faithfulness to them, by his initiative in forgiving them, by making the atonement that he provides available to them. And so in response to all that he's done, they they must respond by keeping the covenant, right? I mean, it's essentially not yeah. a work, but grace, right? Yeah, that, and that ends up being one of the, like, it has to be kept. God said, do this and live. You know, that's the phrase we're going to read in Leviticus. So he's saying it, it has to be done for it to be just, which ends up being one of the tensions. But you're, you're also seeing this, well, the way that, it, that it's going to work, why I was describing the two tablets as like bill and receipt, is that what, what, what's starting to be built out is God is saying, I'm going to pay the bill. Like I'm telling you to do this and I'm going to do it for you. Isaiah is the one who makes that super clear because he starts talking about Israel is his servant, but there's this other servant. He has the suffering servant. And he starts going, is he talking about us or some other guy? Because they recognize that uh, this, this Israelite covenant has to, to be kept. It has to be done but they have to do it. An Israelite has to do it. And so it talks about the suffering servant and his name, you know, it is servant. His name is Israel. He is a covenant. You know, 
<laughs> it all starts coming together. It's like, you know, the, the, the good news is, is that there is a, a substitute Israel who is the covenant, who is the one who frames and forwards God's redemptive plan. So they find it's not us. Uh, we don't frame and forward the plan. He's the one who does it. He mediates God's redemption. We haven't got that for you. We haven't got to Isaiah. But this, when we get to Numbers with the uh, priestly covenant, but it's made with Phineas, that's when it emphasizes God will accept a substitute righteousness. He'll accept somebody who obeys in your place when you haven't. But then the question is, who is it? And then that's the Davidic covenant. He says, well, it's the one that I promised to you back in Genesis 49 who would be born from the tribe of Judah, who would be a scepter, a shepherd, and a stone of Israel. And it's like, well, okay, we get that we can have a substitute, that it's this king representative and and the line of of David, but we don't want him. (laughs) And that's where Jeremiah says, God's going to give you new hearts so that you will want him. And when Jesus comes, he, he is everything that the covenants are pointing to, and he's the, the fulfiller of all of those things. But there's also, there's elements of the, the they're, they're fulfilled in his first coming and his second coming. You know, the, the covenants aren't totally fulfilled until everything reverses back through the Noahic covenant and we're brought into God's eternal rest. You know, the, the train has to go all the way down the tracks into that eternal day of rest to stay there in God's dwelling place forever. But everything has to ascend you know, up into you know, the mount of God, into his dwelling place. Uh, and we'll talk more about that, you know, that stuff in the future. But uh, we have talked about how Eden is a mountain. That's why there's rivers and they flow down because it's, it's up. Stuff goes down from places that are up. <laughs> That's why Ezekiel says it, he calls Eden the Mount of God. But right here, we're at Mount Sinai, and we're recognizing this isn't the way to God. The law isn't the way to God. It's pointing us to another way, in which Jesus comes along and says, I am the way. You know, it's not Mount Sinai. Well, how do, you, how do you ascend to the Mount of God, the tabernacle, the temple, back to Eden? Jesus is the way. Why was it? Why is it that they're not to cut a covenant with the inhabitants? You know, the idea here is of you know, fidelity. And you can hear the the Ten Commandments coming back here again. He said, "You know, <laughs> have no other gods. Don't make a molten image." He's just saying, "This is how you practically apply this stuff." You know, this is sermon application here. He said, "You need to unlearn infidelity, and you need to learn that God's name is jealous." So. It's communicating, you know, the idea of marriage here. It's, you know, you're not, you're, Israel is like a wife to a husband. And God is showing his care and commitment and covenanting with his, his bride who isn't to play the harlot. You know, she isn't to be unfaithful to him. But because of God's character that he's exclusive, that he's unique, that means the relationship with him is like that also. It's exclusive. It's unique. It can't be shared with anybody else or anything else. Otherwise, you end up playing the harlot with other gods. But you know, 
you know, other future biblical authors are going to pick up on this and say, hey, you know, you, you played the harlot with the, the Asherim. You know, you already have the, that mentioned here and other sort of false gods and that they took on the world's worldview and way of doing things, which was spiritual adultery. Now, Israel's role was not to be a kingdom of priests for the Asherim or the Baals or any Babylonian or Canaanite god. And he says with those things that, you know, the word that was used of shattering those tablets is used to say, shatter those things instead. Instead of shattering the relationship with me, Shatter your, your Asherim poles. Shatter your relationship with those things instead and, and come out and be separate. And it comes back to talking about you know, these various feasts being reestablished. You know, God you know, instructed them to have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but they had a false feast at the Golden Calf, and they thought they were obeying him and how they did it, but they were doing it per their old way of living rather than according to his instructions. They just assumed, well, this this is how you do it. But they hadn't learned yet. So now God's saying, learn to do this right. You have to unlearn how you think. When when I say Feast of Unleavened Bread, I don't mean that. I mean this. And these, you know, the false feast compared to the true feast, this is all tied with the fourth commandment, the, the Sabbath. It's te- God owns all of time. He owns the week, the months, the holidays. He made a new calendar for them to show that he's going to make a new creation out of them ultimately. And the Passover that they would celebrate on the calendar would symbolize a redemption into that new creation. And he's shown, I'm giving you that privilege back to be you know, my unique people that makes these sort of things known. Even though you had a false feast, I'm still giving you the true feast. And you need to learn what it was about. And he reminds them of, you know, in, in the event where they had taken the gold from their sons and dedicated their sons in, in the wrong way. He's like, you know, you need to unlearn that and to learn to dedicate your firstborn to me the way that I, I told you to. And the Feast of Weeks, also known as Feast of Pentecost, uh, you know, it's the feast about being, you know, raised. You know, it's the being raised and harvested. You know, as the the wheat would be raised from a seed that had died in in the ground and resurrected as this new plant to be harvested and enjoyed. And there commanded in their calendar in verses 23 and 24 that their males, the firstborn that are dedicated to them, are to come three times a year. And you hear this concept of reversal happening where he says, no man shall covet your land. It's like, well, if I leave my place, somebody's going to desire it with their eyes and like break commandments six through nine to take it from me. <laughs> and God's saying, I'm going to reverse all of that, but you just have to trust me and obey me. I'm going to bring you into that, that rest. And remember the, the fourth commandment's tied with the tenth commandment, you know, resting. The way that you don't rest in God is that you covet something different. 
than, than he wants. You desire something different than what he has given you, something that's unlawful. God is teaching here that he will, he will undo 32. You know, if you had like some cool picket signs to make and you wanted to rally with Moses, you're like, undo 32. For Israel to be a kingdom of priests, they need to have a pure worship. You know, they, that's why they have unleavened bread. You know, they were to, to Sabbath out the leaven. That's the word that's used earlier in the book, which is usually translated, you know, cease. You know, cease to have leaven in your bread, which is a teaching tool to teach you. You need to cease having your old way of life. You need to cease living in uh, the sin that you used to because when you give in just a little bit of, of leaven, it can make the whole lump, the whole assembly can be led into to great sin. So you've just seen this. Now, now that you've seen uh, how it can be misused, you need to learn the right instruction of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So God is teaching them, you know, what they will do on the calendar, how they're going to, to carry it out. And, you know, being outside of this culture, it probably sounds strange to hear about boiling a young goat, goat in its mother's milk. But the, the idea that's being communicated here is you can't have any perversions from society around you. Within the... Uh, Fertility cult of the Canaanites, they believe you know they would have more crops and, and different things if they could take you know the life that came from a goat and then boil it in the thing that would nurture that life. And he says, you know, that's a double perversion because you're you're killing a, a life that should be sustained and you're killing it in the thing that would sustain its life. And you're doing it in the name of fertility. You know, you're doing it in the name of life, but you're carrying out Death in the stuff that gives life. Because you can't do stuff like that. You, you can't take on the practices of the people around you. You have to uniquely belong to me. And I, I define your calendar. I define how you think about life. I define every term and word you use. Everything. You can't let anybody else have that place. So while God is teaching that, you know, he, he's keeping this relationship, he's also instructing on the conduct in this relationship and the reason that Moses is, you know, in the place that he is 40 days and 40 nights is to show the relationships starting over. And the renewal of this covenant reflects the character of God that he, he renews Relationship with rebels, which happens over and over and over while we keep you know, reading in Scripture. God keeps being the, the covenant renewer, though they're unfaithful. And he does this to you know, display his great compassion and forgiveness, not only at these moments in history, but throughout all of history. The Israelites didn't deserve or earn having this standing with God but it's his gracious love that accomplishes it and brings them near, which 
you know, instructs us today that you know, pleading our own obedience or sacrifice doesn't get this sort of relationship with God, but it's only Jesus's obedience and sacrifice that establishes this relationship, which makes me think about you know, you know, the, the self-righteous person who, who, who thinks, well, you know, of course I have a relationship with God. I, I'm godly. I do godly things. I do Bible reading. I do religious stuff. I talk religious. I think about religious things. I, I heard one evangelist talk about how he was talking to some lady who was very much self-righteous, and he asked her, you know, ma'am, do you think that you're ungodly? And she said, well, no, I don't. He said, then I'm very sorry to hear that you can't partake of what Jesus did on the cross because he came to die for the ungodly. You think about that in Romans where it says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Not while we, we thought we were right with him or while we thought we were godly. It was while, you know, you have to come to terms with recognizing you were an enemy with, with God. If you don't get that, I mean, what does it mean to be reconciled with them if you were never an enemy and the relationship never needed to be reconciled in the, the first place? But if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been, been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, we're not saved by our life and how we live, but his life because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, this is how scripture comes into the human realm. You know, God, God speaks and moves along the human author. You know, it, it doesn't just, you know, drop out of the sky. You know, it, it wasn't, yeah, the, you, know, the, you know, God wrote it and gave it to them. You know, they broke it. But another thing that's happening right here, this little transition here, is showing the Israelites they're being uh, reconciled in their relationship to God and to Moses' leadership. So they're, they're showing, you know, he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So it's like, here's God's human leadership. And uh, he's bringing his revelation through human hand. And you see this even with his, you know, the, his, when his face shone and you know, they don't want to come near to him, but the rulers in the congregation return to him. So it's God's you know, establishing the relationship to him and to the way that he's delegating his leadership at this particular time in history. So he's, yeah, he, which is, you know, reconfirming Moses' leadership. God's saying, I'm with him. He's reflecting me, which shows, you know, Yahweh is present with Israel and he is able to transform. Like, well, how do you know that he's able to transform people like us? It's like, well, look at Moses. And this, you know, it, 
what's kind of funny in all of this is, you know, when this happens with Mo, he doesn't know that it has happened. He doesn't realize that he has been transformed, which is how sanctification works. Uh, you don't notice it. It has happened. Other people can probably pick up on it, but you don't tend to pick up on it because well, it's like while you're growing in, in greater godliness, you're also growing in recognizing you're way more sinful than you had realized at, at the same time. And so while you, you, don't, you don't necessarily see that you went three steps forward, you can see the two steps back, but you can't see the, the three forward. And the sanctification is a very mediocre sort of thing. <laughs> it's rarely an ecstatic sort of thing where you know, you're just on cloud nine all the time. It, it usually, it's just through the stuff of the Christian life. It, self-denial. You know, it, it feels like putting yourself to death a lot of the time. But you know, while you're doing that, there's this growth that you don't necessarily perceive. You, know, you see that in Moses. You see that in uh, John the Baptist. You know, he doesn't recognize that, that, like Jesus says, you know, up to this point, there, there hasn't been a greater person born of women. You know, John, John the Baptist is just this guy with weird clothes, weird <laughs> accent, weird diet. You know, why, why the trailer park guy? <laughs> you know, that, that's how you know, he's seeing himself or Paul. Yeah, you know, Paul didn't, we think of him as you know, like one of the, the greatest of the apostles. You know, he thought of himself as the chief of sinners. He's like, there isn't anybody on the planet worse than me. So it's true of spiritual greatness for it to not really be perceived. I think, you remember Moses was, he said in Numbers to be the, the meekest or the, the humblest man on earth. He didn't think of himself as that. Right. <laughs> yeah, because what, what he's, again, what he's reflecting isn't his, his glory, but God's glory. Right? Uh, he, he's gone away. You know, he, he's been put to death, but it's Christ who's alive in him. And it was Christ who, who Moses wrote about, and it's his day that he looked forward to. So with this veil thing, the Israelites, they see it. They're scared because they think that they're going to die. Moses puts a veil over his face. And it, what it points out is that Israel's uh, sinful. You know, they, they haven't been transformed. They don't reflect the glory of God like they should, but it can happen to a human. You know, they can be transformed and reflect his glory. And it shows they're not there yet, but it is possible. Is that there is a glory that transforms and condemns sinners can be transformed by God's glory. I mean, the, Moses, I mean, they, they get the book. I mean, Rose, Moses writes this book and you read it and Moses is a guy who distrusted the Lord, didn't believe him. He, he's a murderer. He doesn't want uh, the, the status, the, the ministry that God would give him, but God still gives him that privilege and grows him in it anyways you know, based on who God is, not who Moses is. And this veil ends up being reflective of a, a veiled heart. This is made, you know, more clear in Second Corinthians 3. You can just write that down and read that later. 
2 Corinthians 3, it talks about a veil over the heart. You know, they, their, their sin's being reflected to them, but the reason they can't see things rightly is because uh, the sinner's face is what's veiled. And this is, you know, the famous sanctification verse toward the end of that chapter about with all, all of us with unveiled face, behold the glory of God and we're being transformed from glory to glory. And he's talking about how there's a difference between that law and what the spirit has done. He says, Here, here's what the law does. It kills you. It comes and it prosecutes you and it shows you that you're dead in sin, but it can't save you. It can't make you alive to it. It can't give you the ability to do it. He says, but you know, we have a better ministry in the new covenant where the, the spirit has given us the desire to, to obey the law of Christ and given us the ability to walk in it and like him. And it's, it's also greater in this way. There's not one guy who's reflecting the transformation. It's everybody. So he says, we have something way better. He says, and it's by God's mercy. This is where he gets into chapter four. He says, all of this ministry is a mercy. He's like, look at it. It's not all wrapped up in one guy. It's all of us. There's the priesthood of believers. Uh, we all get to be oh, mediators of God's presence to be changed in his likeness and reflect it to, to the ends of the earth. Which is why if one of you wants to become a, a missionary, I would encourage that. Right. Maybe you could go to, to Italy since your, your heart has been so provoked. We already have connections there. So you see there's this, here, here's the, the paired tension and hope. You see that there's this tension of God's still holy, you know, we're still sinful, but there's this hope in that this relationship can happen and that we can be transformed. There's the hope of uh, a God-man mediator who can, who can do that for them, but how, how does that work? <laughs> So, okay, we believe it. We believe that it's just forgiveness. How are you going to do that? And that's going to be our last lesson in the book, which is the reason that we can go through so many chapters next week is because it's just stuff that we've already read, actually. You know, the tabernacle, Sabbath instructions comes back that starts to set up. This is all the stuff where God's going to lay out his gospel track to show you how that gospel atonement's going to work. And then it's carried out in uh, Leviticus, which is the mountaintop of the book of Moses. And it's going to be way better than you even know, which is just like any Bible study. It's like, oh man, it's, it's better than I knew. <laughs> so I'll, I'll close us in prayer. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for your word, which it excites our hearts and, it, and it, it humbles us to think that you would forgive sinners like us. It seems almost unbelievable, but it is true and it is your character to forgive sinners like us and for it to be a just forgiveness, which we understand that Christ accomplished carrying out your justice and being the justifier of the ungodly. 
which is us. And we thank you for this reality and pray that we would be further transformed and increase our faithfulness and the mission to make you known to others, that they would be transformed by beholding your likeness through your word, through your people. Amen.